All right, please stand and turn with me in the Bible to John chapter 12. This is going to be our New Testament reading. Read verses 27 to 36, and then we'll turn to our text in Psalm 42 and 43. The reason we're reading those psalms together tonight is because they share the same refrain. It appears twice in Psalm 42, once in Psalm 43, and so really they go together, uh, expressing one three-part kind of uh, idea. And that's why we'll, we'll look at two psalms instead of one tonight. First John 12, verses 27 to 36, and we've already asked for God's blessing on the reading of this word, so I'm going to jump right in now. John 12, 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the son of man must be lifted up? Who is this son of man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. Amen. So we turn back to Psalm 42. Remember how that John passage began, now is my soul troubled. And remember how it ended, the light is among you. Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mitzar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God. To God, my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Amen. You may be seated. We, we humans have kind of a complicated relationship with water. Obviously, we can't live without it. Our bodies are, they say anyway, our bodies are made up of 70% water. I think that's right. You can survive for weeks without food, but only a much, much shorter period of time without water than food. If you don't have enough water, it's a serious, life-threatening problem. On the other hand, there are many circumstances where having too much water is also a serious, life-threatening problem. You think of the storm surge that comes along with a hurricane. Think of, of a creek overflowing its banks after a heavy rain. Think of a dam breaking on a great river upstream from a large populated area in the valley or a dike failing near a city built below sea level. Water is one of the most powerful and destructive forces of nature that we have to contend with. So that means that drought and flood can be equally difficult, though both very difficult experiences. I think it's remarkable that in this pair of psalms there is both drought imagery and Flood imagery. Not enough water in verse 1, but then there are these overwhelming billows and waves of water that come in verse 7. And that's just the beginning in terms of, uh, of what, what turns out to be a very rich poetry of contrasts all the way through Psalm 42 and 43. Um, The psalmist in these two psalms isn't feeling just one thing or another. He's feeling all kinds of things. He's feeling many things. And those feelings are really in conflict even with each other. There's this inward conflict. And, of course, he describes his 
his heart being in turmoil within him. And so what this psalm teaches us then is what to do as God's people when when our hearts are in turmoil, when our experience is very complicated and multifaceted, when our feelings as we react to our circumstances are very complicated, they're, they're conflicting even within us. We feel like our hearts are in turmoil. We feel like on the one hand we're desperately thirsty for God's presence, but at the same time we may be feeling also overwhelmed at the hard providences that God has brought into our lives that feel like floodwaters. Well, these these two psalms, when you put them together, they divide up neatly around the the refrain that occurs in verse 5 and 11 and then 43 verse 5 again uh, into these three parts. So we're going to label them tonight like this. We're going to look at first the drought Second, the flood, and then third, the altar. So the drought is 42, 1 through 5. The flood is verses 6 through 11. And then the altar is where we'll put all of Psalm 43. So first, the drought. The psalmist begins, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Uh, you may know that in Israel there are rainy seasons and dry seasons happen on this annual cycle. And because of that cycle, there's a, a common geographical feature in Israel and other places with climates like it that we don't commonly have in the U.S. Uh, it's called a, a wadi. Sometimes in the ESV it's translated with the word brook. But it's not what we might think of as a brook um, in the mountains of central Pennsylvania. What it refers to is a stream bed that part of the year is flowing with water, like a creek, um, but then during the dry season, it's not flowing with any water. It's a dry, just packed down stream bed. So the imagery in verse 1 is of a wild animal wandering around in the wilderness uh, during an extended time with no rain, when the wadis perhaps have, have dried up for the year, and any kind of fresh, flowing water is very difficult, if not even impossible, to find out there in the wilderness as a deer pants for flowing streams. That's what it feels like, he says, the way that I'm currently longing, thirsting, panting for the presence of God. God feels far away. And this person is longing for God's presence. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul For you, O God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. And in particular, it seems that that we're to visualize here a person who who finds himself actually physically far away from Jerusalem and far away from the temple, that great center of Israel's uh, public worship. When, he asks, shall I come and appear before God. Now, we're going to get to the more individual kind of subjective application of of our feeling of closeness to God. But that's actually secondary. What's primarily in view here is that absence from the public corporate worship of God at the temple. Um, In fact, he goes on and he remembers an earlier time in his life when he was much closer to the temple. He was regularly participating in the public worship of God's people in Jerusalem. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul 
how I would go with the throng. I'd lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. That's what life used to be like for him. But now those, those past experiences of being near to God through participating in public worship at the temple, those themes, those memories are very distant. And in fact, when he remembers those things, it makes it all the more painful for him now to be at a great distance. It seems based on later in the psalm, perhaps up to the north, uh, near Mount Hermon, maybe where he's, he's physically located, thinking these thoughts, praying these prayers. Um, uh, there, what's now on the border between what's now Lebanon and Syria, up to the north of Israel, Mount Hermon is. Now, uh, you and I today are living in a, in a different era of salvation history, right? Uh, where the worship of God is not centered on a single place, the temple in Jerusalem, right? Um, instead, we are God's temple. The church, these, these living stones that God is building by his spirit into a dwelling place for himself. That's how the New Testament uh, teaches that we're to view the church. The church is the temple of God. However, I would still say that you and I can know what it feels like to be separated for a time from the corporate gathering of God's people. Um, I experienced it just a couple weeks ago when I couldn't be with you because of being sick. Um, And all of us experienced it uh, for an extended period of time a couple years ago when we weren't meeting on Sundays for uh, many weeks in a row. But we might ask, is, is this how we felt during that time? Do we experience it like this? Does, does being, even now, when you're, when you're sick or for some other reason providentially prevented from going to church, does, it, does being separated from the corporate worship of God's people, from being together with that temple of living stones where God has promised his special presence to dwell with us, does that make you feel parched, thirsty, panting, for the presence of God. I think we could say that that ought to be our aspiration. That's what true Christian maturity looks like. The more we grow in appreciating and loving and, and really deeply understanding and experiencing in an immediate and personal and heartfelt way the great joy and the privilege of meeting with God together in corporate worship, the more I think we'll learn to miss it. And that's a good thing. It's a good thing to feel that sense of missing that privilege of meeting with God among the people of God. In that sense, this, this thirst, this panting is something we should want, something that we should hope that the Lord would, would produce in our hearts over time as we grow in, in loving, um, worshiping Him along with His people. But as I mentioned earlier, I think there's another sense where this part of the psalm applies to us in the, in the more general way of of the feeling distant from God as an individual, in your individual walk with the Lord at certain times in your Christian life. And again, this is kind of a secondary application, I think. And, and that could be, sometimes it's because of a, a, a period of spiritual backsliding for us. Maybe there's some sin um, that has disturbed our communion with God because we're hanging on to it and not repenting. Uh, sometimes it's not so much sin as it is just circumstances. It could be a sustained period of, of suffering. 
living through a season of life where things are just really difficult. And we, we don't feel in that time a, a subjective sense of the closeness of God. It's not the way the, life, the Christian life feels for us at that time. We might trust his promises. We might trust that he's always with us, that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's an objective fact that never changes. We can believe that. But I think Christian experience of of many mature Christians bears out the, the idea that there are times when the Lord withholds from us for a season that that feeling of his presence, that feeling of nearness to him. And that can be really hard at different times in our Christian life. You may have experienced what is described in verse 3 where he says, My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? And I think we can take that to mean that he's, he's so heartsick that he has physically lost his appetite for food. And instead of eating food, he's, he's just shedding more tears. Instead of going and having a meal, he's just... He just can't do anything but weep. I always, reading this in a cursory way, I always thought the second half of that verse, that the, the one saying, where is your God, were his enemies, which are described later, asking that question. Um, but the way the poetry is phrased um, in, in this verse, I almost think that it's actually his tears that are speaking to him. It's his, it's his own sorrow, his own tears are posing to him this question. Where is God now? Where is your God? He feels so far away. And when those feelings of distance from God, both because of his physical location far from the temple and his, his time of suffering that he's going through in his life, when those feelings start to overwhelm him, what is, what is he to do? What is the psalmist's response to this? Physically, he's far from Jerusalem. In terms of community, he's far from God's people. Spiritually, he feels far from God himself as an individual. But the answer comes in verse 5. He asks himself this question, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he gives himself an answer. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I want you to notice how he describes his heart in two ways here. He describes it as cast down and in turmoil. So cast down, some translations will say downcast. You could describe it as, as, a, as a sinking feeling, sinking down. Um, and you can think about how this is expressed physically in our bodies. When, when we're sad, um, or as, as people might... Um, yeah, when, when we feel sad, when... When we feel what the psalmist is describing here, what happens to what happens to your body? What happens to your face? They, they they sink down, right? The corners of our mouths sink down into a frown. Our shoulders droop in sadness. Our eyebrows are furrowed downward. Our heads sink down, maybe into our hands or something like that. And all of those are are, are physical expressions in our bodies of of what's happening in our hearts. Our hearts are sinking down. Our hearts are downcast. And and we don't quite see clearly the way back up from that. Um, The other description he gives for his heart here is in turmoil, or some translations say disquieted. And you can think of the way that sometimes um, our thoughts we find to be be spinning very rapidly in our minds. Our 
our emotions feel like they're going to boil over. We're gripped maybe by a sense of dread or a sense of panic. And there's just this inward agitation and, and, and turmoil. I think that you know what that feels like. I th- want to be cautious here, but I think that there are analogies we can very helpfully draw between what the psalmist is describing here as his experience and what people commonly refer to today in our contemporary life as depression and anxiety. Now, I'm not saying there's a one-to-one correspondence. These are exactly the same things. And I also want to acknowledge that depression and anxiety are both very complex experiences. They affect us really at the, at the intersection of our bodies and our souls. As body-soul people, there, there are physical or neurological elements to them and all of these things. And there's a great deal of insight that we can get and help that we can get from modern medicine to help relieve the suffering of these kinds of, um, of experiences, uh, especially where it's, it's triggered or, or exacerbated in some way by our bodies, by our physical condition. And so, again, I'm not saying there's a one-to-one correspondence between what this psalm is talking about and, and what maybe a, a medical person might diagnose as depression or anxiety. But what I am saying is that there's a lot of overlap. And that this psalm gives us some very important instruction about how, as a Christian, you can respond, you can find hope in God in the midst of those kinds of experiences. Not just depression, not just anxiety, but many other kinds of emotional and spiritual and physical distress that you may be called to endure, even as a believer perhaps especially as a believer. You think about this, just to elaborate on this a little bit more. Depression contains, even in its very name, that sense of downward motion, that sense of sinking. And it can be described as a feeling of sinking or a feeling of, of flatness or maybe as, a, as being in a deep pit that, that you can't climb out of. Why are you cast down, O oh, my soul? Um... And then the other one, anxiety. Anxiety, we associate with that feeling of gripping, gripping panic, right, and racing thoughts. And what better way to describe than that, that than that our hearts are in turmoil within us. And so in the midst of those feelings of being downcast and in turmoil, or we might be so bold as to go and say depressed and anxious, how does the psalmist respond here? What counsel does he give himself? And I think it's kind of an interesting way to put it. Uh, that's, that's kind of what he's doing here, right? He's, he's counseling himself based on the promises of God. Um, in, in seminary, in our counseling classes, sometimes we would be given what they called self-counseling projects. Uh, and so in, instead of just thinking about how to counsel somebody else, well, where you need to start is take a situation in your own life and give yourself some godly counsel in light of the scriptures. Um, and that, that exercise was modeled actually after these two psalms where the psalmist counsels himself. Soul, I'm going to ask you these questions. Why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? And in light of what you know about God and about yourself and about his promises, what should you do about it? How can you respond in faith to this hard time in your life. 
And this is something I think all of us ought to seek to learn to do, to develop this skill, this practice, this discipline in our lives as Christians. To look honestly at those boiling feelings in our hearts and to think, okay, what do I know to be true? What do I know to be true? Not because I feel like it's true, but because God has promised it, because God has declared it to be true in his word. And he's given me that unchanging word so that I can bring it to bear on my changing, always changing feelings. I can keep pointing myself back to the hope that I have in him. Even when I'm experiencing feelings that are not stable and that I cannot control and that I feel like are overwhelming me. I ask myself the question, why are you cast down? Why are you in turmoil? And then I give myself the answer from the word of God, hope in God, who does not change. I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. All right, now we'll be able to consider that refrain a little bit more later, but for now, verses 6 to 11. Here the imagery is not of a drought anymore, it's of a, a, a waterfall. It's the opposite of drought, right? Before there was not enough water, Not enough of God's presence, but now there's too much water. He feels like God is is like a roaring waterfall threatening to overwhelm him. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me, he says. It makes me think of the hymn, when peace like a river attendeth my way. That's nice. Or when sorrows like sea billows roll. And if you know anything about the life of um, Bonar, Horatio Bonar is his last name. I forget his first name at this moment, but um, he had sorrows like sea billows roll over him in his life before he wrote that hymn. God's hard providences uh, can feel that way in the Christian life. We become spiritually disoriented sometimes as we're being just tossed head over heels in a wave that is way too big for us. We don't know up from down anymore. And at times like that, we might not actually feel at all a desire for more of God's presence. Instead, we might actually feel like retreating away from him. There's a very striking, most disturbing verse in Psalm 39 where David actually says to God, God, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. He wants God to turn away from him because he's feeling the presence of God is a, is a burning, difficult thing. But we also want to notice how in the second section, he definitely goes back and forth. Again, he's not feeling all just one thing. He goes back and forth between that feeling of instability and confusion on the one hand, but then on the other hand, there are these very clear expressions of trust and and confidence in God. For example, verse 8, by day the Lord commands a steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. And so in the midst of those sorrows like sea billows rolling, as he does go about uh, mourning and oppressed and wondering why it feels like God has forgotten him. Nonetheless, nonetheless, he trusts that day and night, God's steadfast love, that that chesed covenant loyalty I've told you about so many times of the Lord, (coughs) hasn't gone away. It's the unchanging constant in the midst of his changing circumstances and his changing feelings. Think about those 
universal constants of mathematics and physics, the things that don't change and then everything else we measure relative to them, like pi or the speed of light. And everything else may change, but those stubbornly stay the same. That's what it's like in the midst of all these changing feelings to have confidence in that chesed covenant loyalty of God. It's steadfast love. Day and night is the same. And uh, he gives voice then to that trust in God. How? He does it by praying, a prayer to the God of my life. This really resonates, I think. Again, think about how the Bible talks about anxiety. Um, it reminds me of Philippians 4, 6, where Paul says what the Christian response to anxiety, that inward turmoil in our hearts ought to be when he tells us, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, what? what's the alternative? By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel that inward turmoil, what we're supposed to do, Paul's instructing us, and this psalm I think is modeling for us, what we're to do is to translate that experience of turmoil into prayer, to bring it to the Lord, to present it to him, a prayer to the God of my life, trusting that he's the only one ultimately who's able to actually do something about it. It is by prayer, it is by bringing our fears and suffering to God and holding it up to him with open hands that we also receive, that we lay hold in faith of the unchanging, steadfast love and loyalty of God to us. All right, the drought, the flood, finally, the altar. Psalm 42 begins with feeling far away from God's presence, far away from Jerusalem, far away from the worship of God's people. Psalm 43 really emphasizes the hope of returning to God's presence, of getting back there, of God, in fact, leading him back into his presence by his power, by his great, by his light and his truth. I love that. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me back to God, back to his presence. Uh, verses 1 and 2, he describes these enemies who seem to have the upper hand to the point that there, there seems to him at this, at this moment to be a, a kind of a mismatch between what God has promised and what seems right now to be happening. Saying, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm taking refuge in you, but it feels like you're rejecting me. I'm, I'm being oppressed by these enemies. It, it feels like they're prevailing. It looks like they're prevailing. And so what does he call on the Lord to do in response? He's, he's calling on God to fulfill his promises. He says, Lord, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your, to your dwelling. So think about it here. What, is the, what does he want the most in this time of oppression and suffering? You could say, well, he wants to be vindicated. He wants to be delivered from, from his enemies. And yes, that's true. But it's not just victory and vindication that he's looking for. It's not just that he wants them to lose. It's not just that he wants to be proven right. What does he want the most? What will victory and vindication actually look like for him if they're going to be really satisfying? Well, that comes in verse 3. He wants to be close to God again. The resolution to all this sorrow and oppression he's experiencing right now is only going to come from being in God's presence where all of the frustration of the things that he doesn't understand can melt away as he draws near to God, as he learns to trust him, that he is wise, that he is good, that he loves us, that he wants what is best for us, and that he's powerful enough to bring that to pass. And so he ends the Psalm 43 by repeating that same refrain a third time. Why are you cast down, O my soul? 
And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You know, as we, as we come to the end of these two psalms, we kind of look back over the whole. I want to help us to reflect on, on the whole thing by drawing your attention to what we read earlier before the sermon text from John chapter 12. John chapter 12 reminds us that even the Lord Jesus, God come in the flesh, a true man, Perfect man, a true man, body and soul, Lord Jesus knew in his own life what it was like to experience his soul in turmoil within him. How do we know that? Well, when he says in John twelve seven, now is my soul troubled. The Greek verb, the Greek verb root there is the same as the verb root in the Greek translation of Psalm 42, 5. Why are you in turmoil within me? Now, we want to make a careful distinction here. Jesus never was sinfully anxious. Jesus never was sinfully worried and fretting and the mistrust of his heavenly Father that so often characterizes our experience of worry and anxiety and these things in this life. And yet, we can see it there in John 12. We can see it in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus certainly knew the experience of his soul being in turmoil within him and of being cast down. Things that are not sinful in themselves. They're part of the suffering of life in this world. So we could ask the question then, when Jesus' soul was in turmoil, what did he do? Now is my soul troubled, he said. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But but for this purpose I have come to this hour. The resolution comes in the next phrase. Father, glorify your name. That's what Jesus wants. And the voice comes from heaven reassuring him, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Comfort that the Father offers to the Son in that moment of turmoil in his soul. See, Jesus knew that he was going to the cross. But even as he set his sights on the cross, he also set his sights beyond the cross. He hoped in God. He was trusting that his heavenly Father was going to vindicate him, was going to restore him on the other side of death. Don't you think about the three steps we've been here through the drought, the flood, and the altar. See, on the one hand, Jesus on the cross experienced the ultimate drought of God's presence. He was physically thirsty, of course. I thirst, he said. But we also see him there spiritually thirsting for God's presence, don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the other hand, though, couldn't we say that Jesus was also experiencing, in in another way, the presence of God, but the presence of God in the unbearable ferocity of his wrath against sin. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. That's what it was like 
for Jesus on the cross to bear God's condemnation against sin. Not his sin, but our sin that was laid upon him. He experienced the drought and the flood. And why was that? Well, it's because he was in that moment on the altar as the sacrifice. Jesus was not that day the worshiper coming in the joy of God's light and truth to experience God's blessing. No, actually, if you think about it, Jesus was God's light and God's truth. The psalmist asked, send forth your light and your truth. The Lord answered that prayer in the highest possible way by sending us the Lord Jesus, the light of the world, the way and the truth and the life. He sent forth his light and his truth to lead us to God. He also sent forth his light and his truth to be crucified for us, to be sacrificed on the altar. Why was that? Well, so that he might answer the prayer of Psalm 43 for you, that he might bring you to that very altar, so that he might bring you to his heavenly dwelling through Christ, to bring you to God, your exceeding joy, so that you could meet him, not as a condemning judge, but as a loving heavenly father, and not swept away yourself by that torrent of judgment, floodwaters of wrath. But instead, you could be received and welcomed and, and protected by his steadfast love for you because of what Jesus endured in your place on the cross. So yes, on the cross, Christ's soul was cast down and in turmoil within him. What else, what else can we say? Jesus on the cross was also hoping in God that after the cross, what would come next but the resurrection? Hope in God, for I shall yet again praise him, my salvation and my God. That is who God the Father was to Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that is who God the Father is for you as his precious child in union with Christ today. See, when we think about this psalm, then, in light of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it begins to take on such a deeper and richer meaning for us, doesn't it? When you remember that Jesus went through the drought and the flood and the altar for you, then you start to realize, that's why I can pray this prayer. That's why this psalm can be so meaningful for me, because my circumstances, my feelings, they are changing all the time. But when I look at Jesus can see in him that God's promises are unchanging. And so in the drought and in the flood, you and I can come to the altar, to that heavenly altar and say with the psalmist and with our Lord Jesus, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the psalm. Thank you for the way it gives voice both to our suffering, both to the turmoil and distress of our experience of life in this fallen world. Thank you also the way it teaches us to give voice to our hope. We have in Christ, who endured 
the drought and the flood for us, who was sacrificed on the altar for us so that he might lead us to you. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would indeed send forth your light and your truth and let them lead us and bring us to your holy hill and to your dwelling, both now as we gather together in worship and meet with you week by week in private, but, Lord, ultimately in the new heavens and the new earth and heaven itself. Christ comes again and brings us home once and for all. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.